You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me in a very eventful week, um, as usual, I guess, but this one particularly so, David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast uh, uh, and the sponsors uh, are finding it helps them. Uh, and we've got a lot to talk about, as you say, but I guess we're going to start with uh, your lawn, the first of a number of uh, dominoes uh, that's likely to fall in the coal sector. Well, it is. Um, and just for those who may not have caught up with the news, just to summarise very briefly, um, Energy Australia, one of the big energy companies, announced this week that Elon will close. It will close by 2028. It was previously scheduled to close at 2032, although it was assumed that one unit would fall each at a time from 29, 30, 31, 32. But David, um, and look, and one of the reasons why it's closing is that it's probably the dirtiest coal generator in Australia, according to emissions intensity. It's really old. It's r- pretty unreliable, broken down 50 times in the last two years. And it is not liking the new market conditions of renewables and particularly rooftop solar because it has no ability to ramp, which means increase and decrease its output according to demand. David, it talks about bringing forward the date by four years, but um, I get the impression that you are one of many people who were surprised it's actually going to last that long. Well, I think there's some talk about support from the Victorian government to help it get going that long. You're right to talk about the ramping. That's the uh, point that uh, we've drawn attention to, and I guess many others. Um, there's a lot that could be said about it, but but in the end, there's a lot of new wind and uh, solar coming online every year for the next three years and, and then beyond that with the New South Wales uh, roadmap as well and 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 other state-based targets, all of which is going to make uh, a need for ramping, particularly with the solar component, ramping to go down in the middle of the day for coal generation and be able to go up at, up at night time. Brown coal, as you say, is particularly unsuited to that. The one alternative would have been to run steadily and send the power up to New South Wales, but that's effectively where the New South Wales strategy has meant that the price that they'll receive from that will be unviable. To remind our listeners that, you know, futures prices uh, in Victoria were up around 80 or $90. That's the price generators get uh, uh, a year ago, and now they're down around 30 and $40, and, and ITK and I think most other people expect them to stay at that level for years and years and years. Mm. Uh, and it, you, know, you can't even cover your fuel costs in New South Wales as a coal generator at those kind of prices. So um, um, the, the other thing I think uh, that will come on to, no doubt, is that uh, your lawn being brought forward is also means that coincides more or less at the same time that many of us expect Vales Point be in New South Wales, another 1,000 megawatts to to uh, be closing. And there'll be issues in Queensland around then. And the final thing I want to say uh, before I shut up 
uh, is that I expect your lawn will be running a lot less. By the time it closes, we may not even notice it's happened. <laughs> um, you talk about a lot of wind and solar in the pipeline. Um, your lawn currently supplies about, I think, 8% of the total energy market output and about 20% of Victoria. I don't even know if those figures are current. It's certainly what it has been in the past. It probably is what it is now. What do we need to have installed by 2028 or probably even earlier, if you're right about it, winding down um, before? Um, what, what do we need in the terms of new generation to be installed? I mean, they've talked about a battery, which would be a useful addition, but won't sort of completely replace it, of course. Um, is there a magical number that we need? And I wish to point out, too, that the... Um, um, the um, energy efficiency people have done a report and suggested that the new Victorian measures could actually completely offset um, the uh, generation lost by your lawn um, if the um, if the government sort of expands it to, to 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 certain things, and that's a really interesting point. We're talking about more sort of smart software and sort of smart you know demand, the demand side as well as the um, as the supply side. But broadly, David, get back to my original question. What do we need in terms of new wind and solar? And can we do it? Is the grid going to be ready for it? Well, the first thing I want to distinguish is the difference between energy, the amount of electricity that's consumed over a period of time, and we'll be talking years here, and power, the amount of electricity that you need at any given instant in time. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, that's the most important distinction to, to have. And in terms of energy, uh, your lawn supplied about nine terawatt hours of energy per year. Uh, and it takes roughly three megawatts of wind or solar to replace one megawatt of, uh, of, of brown coal in terms of the amount of energy produced uh, per year, roughly a ratio of three to one. So ITK thinks that the, we can identify nine uh, thousand megawatts of new wind and solar that's been built over will enter operations over the next three years. That's a lot. And um, that will produce uh, uh, about the equivalent of 3,000 megawatts of uh, coal generation, brown coal generation in terms of its energy. But the other thing is to make sure, and this is where we, we start to get into the area of modeling, of making sure there's enough dispatchable power We've long identified that, you know, in the 5 to 7 p.m. window at night time uh, or on those cold uh, 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 winter nights in Victoria uh, when everyone's off at the Aussie rules or whatever, uh, that that's the time that wind and solar are, are going to struggle in winter. And, and you have to make sure that you've got enough dispatchable power to replace it. So there are two. It's not just wind and solar that will do the job. It's, it's all the other things. Mm-hmm. Finally, before I, before I hand back again, I want to say that in the for the next few years, I personally am not in the slightest concerned about about the amount of firming power that's going to be supplied because what I see uh, is that all the wind and solar that's coming in will push the coal generation out into a smaller and smaller window into that five to seven pm window. So all that coal generation is going and gas generation and the hydro is going to be competing for a smaller and smaller slice of the daily market. Um, and, and, and whilst there's still an excess of all this coal generation, the prices will remain very relaxed in that window. And that's, that's what the, the futures prices are telling us. Once the coal generation all exits, and, and the risk is if it all exits all at once, uh, then uh, all of a sudden you might have tonnes of wind and solar, but still face some reliability risk. Now, and that's the part of the system that needs uh, careful planning. Mm-hmm. 
Just to um, um, one final question before we introduce our guest today, um, just want to point out first that AEMO in a um, in a uh, Clean Energy Council seminar today just pointed out that there's actually ten or is it nine gigawatts of wind and solar applications in Victoria alone that they're currently looking at, and there's another ten gigawatt of people who have approached them and want to talk to them about possibility of connection. So you know the the, the pipeline of potential projects is huge. Um, actually, sort of getting onto the grid. Um, is going to be a different matter. That's right, Giles. That we, that's where the transmission side of things come in. And if we're not careful, we'll 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 be here for another hour talking about how federal policy could be a lot could, could actually improve the smoothness of this and improve the efficiency with which we manage this transition. Anyone who's talking about a carbon war, if there is such a thing, as far as electricity goes, that's over. We're in the mopping up stage, you know. We're, uh, everyone now understands, uh, from the federal government down, that 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 the coal generation is going away, and what's uh, we all know that, but it still has to be managed. And that seems to be the frustration that's been expressed um, by you and by other people. Kerry Schott, um, the uh, chair of the ESB Energy Security Board, this week said that um, Angus Taylor uh, Taylor's comments. Um, about intervening in the market were not helpful and um, you've written a very strong piece to uh, th this week and um, um, as have others um, just sort of um, just very frustrated with the federal policy, policy position. It really hasn't evolved since um, Liddell, the closure of Liddell was announced once again with seven years notice back in 2016. Yes, no, there is no federal policy uh, at all at the moment. There's a technology roadmap uh, and there's a lot of bullying, uh, secretive bullying at the, most of the time coming from the federal government. Uh, my piece today was designed to point out how uh, the minister, Angus Taylor, has mismanaged the politics as much as the policy. policy. He's mismatched, the, he's lost control of the agenda. It's always hard for the federal government, but because the one thing the federal government really was responsible was for was a national carbon policy, and we don't have one of those, and, and states, you know, can influence and drive electricity policy, and by doing that, they also drive um, uh, carbon policy in the states. And, and that's what's happened because mm. the, the, the federal government left it open and pissed the states off, frankly, not holding COAG meetings or whatever they were. Then the states have just taken over. And I mean, New South Wales has decided that it can't let the coal generators close without having a plan to replace them. And, and you know, I think Matt Keane is, has, has done, I really do think, a, a, a wonderful job of building a political coalition that everyone is getting behind. That's the way policy should be developed. Indeed, indeed. And look, this sounds like a perfect segue um, to uh, introduce our guest who's been very patient uh, waiting in the background there. I mean, one of the questions about the transition is not just about sort of replacing one fuel with another and one energy system and market set of market rules another. It's also about transitioning the whole community. Um, and one person that's been very much involved in that is Adam Clark, the sustainability manager from the city of Newcastle. Um, once again, a very significant coal region. Um, Adam, Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great to be joining you both. Good on you, Adam. Look, come at Newcastle region, the city of Newcastle. I mean, the city of Newcastle, I think, hosts, I mean, is it still the biggest world's um, coal port? I'm not too sure. But you've got this extraordinary ambitious plan um, of 100% renewables, um, which is sort of multifactorial um, happening in both in sort of energy and in, um, in uh, electric vehicles and, and, and industry. Tell us a bit more what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, City of Newcastle has sort of been focusing on 
our operations for quite some time in terms of reducing emissions um, across what we do. Uh, we had some pretty strong delivery targets and a key focus of that has been in the electricity space. Um, it accounted for about 80% of our emissions profile um, and you know across the city it's a, a similar sort of breakdown, it's around 65%. Uh, so we've you know really strongly been trying to take that you know demonstration and leadership view of you know what can we do within our own organization um, and then how can we utilize that knowledge to help them, the community to a future shift um, towards net zero so adam um, I, I think I, I was attracted to a piece you wrote uh, recently pointing out that you've done a PPA with I think flow power which effectively means that all of the city of Newcastle's um, uh, electricity consumption is in one sense met by wind power uh, from the Sapphire Wind Farm and it happens that the um, profile of that wind output pretty much matches the electricity consumption. So even if it had been a real wind farm as opposed to a, a PPA contract, uh, you still would have got a good result. But can you just tell me a little bit about how that uh, PPA was developed and what the results have been from it from a financial perspective maybe? Yes, yeah, certainly. So, as I mentioned, we, we had a sort of strong focus on our operations over the last, you know, 10 years or so. We've done a lot of rooftop solar. Um, we've also developed a five megawatt solar farm uh, for our own, at our waste facility out at Summerhill. So, you know, the daytime load uh, was, was quite well covered uh, from that perspective. But when we started to look down the track of moving to 100% renewable electricity supply, um, we really wanted to match our load profile and we had a, a very high evening and nighttime load because of our street lighting. Uh, so as we went through that process, we started to look at, you know, what are the opportunities, what are the different generation profiles. Uh, wind obviously was a, a good fit for that and Sapphire Wind Farm in particular uh, was an opportunity and, you know, some of the modelling had shown that, you know, when it's generating, it's, it's matching our street lighting and our evening load. Uh, and also having some daytime production as well. Um, but I guess the, the article you referred to was, you know, it's all well and good modelling things, but looking at the actual data now that we've had a, that contract in place for a year, uh, you know, it's really stacking up in terms of, of what we were predicting, which is great to see. And not only supporting, you know, more renewable generation, but also the financial savings associated with that. So. We've seen about a 12.5% reduction on our electricity costs, and that's while also having that renewable PPA in place. And uh, um, uh, sorry, I was leaving a bit of space for Giles there, but uh, I just want to ask uh, if we move on. I mean, a city has it sort of strikes me as a, a um, it's difficult, but it's a great, in, there's more than just what the council does in terms of its own consumption it's kind of also providing the uh, facilities I guess for things like uh, electrified public transport electric push bikes uh, you know there's uh, in the way the rates are set you can probably influence policy I just wondered how you plan to develop uh, your 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 city's uh, policies uh, going forward. Yeah, so we, we recently, sort of over, over the last year, we developed our next climate action plan out to 2025. Um, so that remains a, a number of key targets 
for our organisation internally and, and now that we've dealt with electricity as an emissions source, a big target for us is our fuel usage, so looking to electrify fleet, you know, cars, trucks, possibly the, the garbage trucks which, which could charge off the solar farm at, at the waste facility. Um, but also there's quite a lot of focus um, on how we help the city move forward to a, a net zero emission future. Um, so in that community plan as well, you know, we've got targets around how do we use our knowledge and experience to help perhaps coordinate a, a renewable power purchase, you know, buyers group similar to what Melbourne has done. How do we encourage community renewable energy projects? Um, how do we, you know, talk to businesses in industry about you know, how to manage this transition and start to you know, do it in a way that you're also making considerable financial savings in the process. Yeah, David, um, I actually uh, couldn't find the unmute button, so thanks for sort of stepping in. Um, um, it's an uh, ongoing problem. Um, Adam, the um, the politics of having a city like this at, at the council level, um, were there any sort of barriers to overcome there? I mean, you know, city of Newcastle, I, I do remember the council um, at Collie, which is the sort of the, uh, the big coal town in Western Australia. And if you go back a couple of years, there was a study into looking into installing rooftop solar on the council's um, buildings and elsewhere and sort of offsetting its electricity things and all established that it would deliver a significant saving to the electricity bill but they decided not to go forward because they thought it was a very bad sign for a coal town to adopt solar and um and 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 you know that wouldn't be well received so has there been any sort of resistance at council level have you gotten what sort of feedback have you gotten from the community um yeah just just tell us about that yeah so i think um you know we we sort of recognize the fact that you know that's that's where the where the world is moving in terms of moving towards that that net zero emissions future. Um, we we see it as our responsibility to help demonstrate and and share experience about you know how to best manage that transition. Um, Newcastle has obviously gone through quite big transitions in the past with the the closure of the BHP steelworks. Um, so we've, we've done it before, but you know I think we're at a situation now that you know feedback that we got in developing the climate action plan and through our community strategic plans, you know there is a big focus on people wanting to do things more sustainably, you know making sure that we have good jobs in a in a future economy. Um, so I think on the ground there's you know a real groundswell, sorry to use that term, that you know more honest and kind of open conversations are beginning to happen and people just sort of want the facts about what's the time frame, how do we get prepared, what can we do and, and how do we ensure there's good jobs in, in the area in the future. Mm. Uh, I, I think I should add that, you know, there are a lot of, high, well, some high-tech companies in Newcastle uh, based there like Switched In, which we've had on this uh, yep. uh, podcast uh, previously and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of talent Um I just, you must, uh, I'm sure you uh, council guys or uh, talk to each other and go to conferences and stuff. Um, what's, you know, can, I mean, is, is, do you find that Newcastle's a, a leader or, or, I mean, is there, uh, other people interested in, other, other councils interested in going on similar paths? Sunshine Coast, I think, has a, has a solar farm, for instance. Yeah, so Sunshine Coast, as you mentioned, has a solar farm and we've sort of spoken at length with them in the past when we were developing our own. A um, number of councils now that have 
move to 100% renewable electricity contract and, and quite a lot that are also interested um, in going that way as well. So there's definitely a great uh, network of, of information sharing at that local government level. Um, you also mentioned in terms of the, the local talent here in, in Newcastle, we, you know, we've got the, the CIRO Energy Centre, we've got the university with the New South Wales Institute, sorry, Newcastle Institute of Energy and Resources. So we have a lot of the research capability um, and also the, the manufacturing for that. So we're starting to see, you know, a recent announcement of the first lithium battery factory in Australia is getting built um, in the region, which is great to see. Uh, you know, you mentioned other uh, other companies that are in the clean tech uh, space. It's yeah, a, a lot happening. It's hard to keep up sometimes in in terms of all the announcements. So tell us about this battery factory um, that's going to be built there. Um, who, who's building it, and um, and when and why? I can guess why. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the the battery factory is uh, out at Tomago. Uh, it's by Energy Renaissance, and they're looking to basically create lithium ion batteries for the Australian market with as high a Australian content as possible. Um, so, you know, they're seeing the demand there, they're seeing the opportunity. We, as a nation, tend to, you know, export materials and, and bring them back when value's been added to them. So they're looking at how do you actually create that value here locally in terms of some of the raw materials um, and export that technology. Um, so, again, I think they've, they were looking at a few different different sites for that and, and that we're happy that they've chosen the, the Hunter region. Hmm. And what about electric vehicles? Um, you've talked about these. Newcastle is the mayor driving electric vehicle yet, or the councillors or the staff driving electric vehicles? And, and, and what else can you influence? I mean, you mentioned the garbage trucks and some of the sort of the heavier vehicles, which are, might might be um, might be um, options. Can you do that with buses, um, or is that a private fleet that you can encourage? And yeah, so I think um, so. The the bus network that's run by. Uh, Keola Downer, the Newcastle transport operator, they've definitely, um, we've, we've done previous projects with them uh, and they've put in an EOI to the state government for their net zero emissions buses, um, which they're waiting on uh, some feedback on that. Uh, in terms of our own fleet, we've, we've got a number of electric cars uh, and some vans and we're also waiting on an electric tipper truck. Um, by Sea Electric, uh, which should be coming in the next couple of months. Uh, but we're also looking at, you know, all our other plant and equipment and how we start to trial, um, you know, different different bits of kit that are available. Because it's not also just, obviously, the, the emission side of thing, it's the, the savings from transferring it to electric rather than diesel, but also the health benefits in terms of the reduced air pollution. I think that can't be understated about, you know, you, you start to, you have someone on a ride on mower out in the parks and things like that. I'm, I'm sure they're pretty happy if it's electric rather than sucking in diesel fumes all day. Uh, similar with, you know, trucks and garbage trucks and things like that. And we're also, again, lucky that we have, you know, other companies in this space. So 3ME Technology, they're another local company that looks on retrofitting hard to do equipment. Um, so they're focused on mining, military and marine equipment. Um, but we're also sort of working with them on some of our big, you know, big equipment and, and how you can 
transfer that over to an electric platform. I, I look forward to the day when I see a politician in, in a high-vis uh, vest and, and, and a hard hat holding um, you know, an electric uh, uh, whippersnipper or, or um, <laughs> chainsaw in, instead of the um, daily noise ritual I enjoy around, uh, endure around here. Um, <laughs> Adam, yeah, uh, uh, I think because I think there is ter ter terrific uh, potential for it. Um, I just, uh, it's probably way beyond what Newcastle could undertake, uh, uh, you know, as a council. But I just wondered if you uh, have you thought about, you know, Newcastle as a grid, uh, uh, as opposed to. Um, uh, you know, an integrated sort of self-contained grid. And my favourite slogan uh, that I try to live by is to think local, uh, uh, to act, think think global and act local. And, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, one of the developments late last year in terms of the, the state government legislation was that the Hunter region was added as a renewable energy zone. Um, we're sort of, as a region, working through what the opportunity is there because we actually already have the infrastructure um, which is what it's sort of determined to do in other areas. Um, so how can we best you know, utilise that existing in infrastructure? I think we already have, you know, a lot of opportunity for extra solar and wind and pumped hydro um, up in the Hunter Valley. Locally here around the, the port region, you know, Port of Newcastle is, is definitely interested in a, a whole range of opportunities around renewable uh, hydrogen and renewable ammonia, um, potentially offshore wind in future. So, yeah, there, there's definitely, and, you know, at, at the same time, there's talk of renewable industrial precincts, precincts in the city. Um, so I think there's definitely a an opportunity to coordinate all these different ideas to bring in, you know, all this renewable energy into a central zone, possibly behind the meter on port lands and things like that to provide you know, cheap power for industry, cheap power for renewable hydrogen um, and other opportunities. I think the precinct model is going to get uh, quite a run over the next few years, but and it's uh, very embryonic at the moment, but you're starting to see the, the shoots of that emerging. Over to you, Giles. I'm just wondering, um, just getting back to electric vehicles, um, Adam. Um, so, so is um, are, are the staff driving driving some? Are you are, are you driving one? Uh, when I can book it, it seems to be pretty popular. Uh, yeah, so we've got a number of fleet cars that are bookable um, that are electric, and they seems to be the ones that that are always booked out. Uh, but yeah, we definitely have plans to to continue to transition that and and our other heavier vehicles um, as options become available. Uh, we've also, you know, for staff cars that they take home, we've sort of transitioned over to hybrid models um, at the moment uh, while we work out the complexity about setting up home charging for, for staff and things like that. Mm. Um, I guess I, I mean... Wanted, the I wanted to ask about charging. I yeah. mean, is, does Newcastle have a good charging network? Yeah, so we've uh, rolled out a number of public EV charging stations and where possible we've actually added rooftop solar uh, car parks and also battery storage at those sites. So some of those are actually off operating effectively off-grid even when they're charging vehicles. Uh, for our own sites we've, we've got a whole bank of, of chargers at our, our building and we use a you know working with the supplier on a demand management um, charging smart charging uh, control system uh, and the intention with that is to also start to 
bring that into our, our spot market data. So that we, we bring in that feed. So if prices are high, you know, we're not charging vehicles at, at high spot prices, but we're also then managing our, our peak demand capacity charges and things like that. Um, so yeah, we're well on the path there to, uh, to making sure we're prepared for, for the rush of, of change. You, you, you mentioned the fact that about, about the emissions from vehicles, and um, I, I can't quite remember the exact um, number of, um, I, I think, vehicle emissions in Australia can be attributable can, um, to um, more than 2,000 deaths and, you know, um, probably more than a million around the world, um, and that's separate from sort of coal-fired uh, power station uh, emissions. Yeah. We've seen cities um, overseas, um, I'm, I think sort of, you know, um, petrol and diesel cars will become a little bit like smoking um, in the way that we sort of um, treat and sort of tolerate or don't tolerate um, the emissions coming from. And we've seen some cities, Paris, for instance, um, put bans on diesel cars and, and other people put various restrictions in there. Has that entered the thinking at all in the city of Newcastle? Now, it might be like a bit of a light touch, so you might actually just provide sort of incentives, clear ways, parking or, or, or whatever it is to electric vehicles. Or, or might you sometime down the track, is there any sort of conversation about making you know parts of the city electric only or hybrid only or or, or or banning some things or are you even thinking towards autonomous vehicles and having those sort of networks i mean how forward are you looking at this yeah so we had a um we actually had a autonomous vehicle um trial running uh, last year and the year before and, and that was in partnership with uh the newcastle transport operator uh in terms of you know some of the actions that, that we're considering for the climate action plan there is a, a strong section that focuses on how do we work with state government and, and others so newcastle transport fleet and freight operators to you know encourage electric buses ferries taxis um, delivery trucks and things like that i think yeah you know some of the initiatives that you mentioned i'm, I'm definitely quite interested in and when COVID lifts, I've, uh, I've actually got a study tour over to, to Europe um, to go and check out a whole bunch of these places, which I'm looking forward to. But yeah, I, I think, you know, our, our initial kind of opportunity to help encourage a pretty nascent industry is by providing that public charging uh, infrastructure around the city, uh, also purchasing fleet ourselves, which can then be rolled over into the secondhand mm -hmm. market. Um, so they're probably the first steps, but we are having other conversations about, how, you know, what are the other levers that, that potentially we could pull to, to help encourage it. What, what, what did the autonomous um, trial um, tell you? Uh, so it was uh, a trial based on, you know, looking at, you know, real traffic conditions around the harbour and, you know, how... In, in a way, it was about community acceptance and things like that, an early kind of foray into, you know, how's the community going to react to these kind of things in the future? Um, it was only a, a sort of limited time period, but, you know, big kind of hopes in the future that it can provide a sort of last mile uh, service. So, you know, think kind of on-demand autonomous little buses and things like that, because we also have on-demand shuttles and, and that operating in the area. Um, so I, th I think from a development point of view, it's probably quite some time off before it's going to be, <laughs> you know, everywhere, but it was a sort of early opportunity um, funded by some grant funding to, to try and demonstrate it and, and see how it goes. Part of the big process was more around 
you know, the legislative pathway and, and the hoops you have to jump through to, to actually get an AV on the road at this point in time. So I, I think uh, we're probably uh, coming coming to the end of the podcast, uh, Adam. I just, uh, I'm sure, wanted to say particularly thanks. I, uh, Giles and I often get caught up with, uh, I think, the, the, the big picture uh, uh, and what's going on. And, you know, uh, next week I hope to be talking uh, about the USA and, and what Joe Biden's up to. But to hear these real-world examples of what's actually happening at a city uh, where that I can really relate to, um, uh, and to see how much progress has been made, uh, uh, you know, gives me a warm glow in the heart. So well done. <laughs> Thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Adam Clark from the City of Newcastle for joining us today. Um, David, um, I look forward to the conversation next week, um, having a look at Biden's America and it's um, well, his version of the Green New Deal. Um, and before I just will thank the sponsors, um, Pylon and Everjane, um, is there anything else that we need to wrap up as other news um, scuttering around um, town? Um, I don't think so. Well, there were a couple of solar projects or a solar project that was announced this week. Um, um, Snowy Hydro via, um, oh, my God, uh, Light Source BP's... Um, can't believe you can name the damn solar farm now, but uh, West Wyalong Solar Farm, that's what it is, which will provide green electricity to the network of BP, petrol and diesel fuel stations around New South Wales. So um, one step at a time, I guess. Anything, any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, only to mention, while we're back on the international theme, that the uh, border tax that we spoke briefly about last week is making progress in Europe and I think is in the European Parliament. I haven't uh, had a chance to catch up with yet. Approved I, last night. Approved last night. I'm not sure if approved always means that actually it's going to happen. I'm sure there are subsequent <laughs> steps. But in Europe, where everything has to be uh, double-dotted and triple-crossed, triple but... Uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, that's progress, and so I, I think it's um, there's a lot going on uh, internationally as as well as locally, and uh, so there'll be plenty for us to talk about, Charles. I look forward to it, and thank you very much once again to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thank you all to our listeners um, for tuning in and giving us your feedback. Please continue to do so. Um, put a review on your favourite platform, particularly the Apple one, and we'll be back again this time next week. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid-design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.